chillin' and a you will hear about the eliminating of the negative and a accent on a positive. And gather round me, chillin', if you're willing, and sit tight while I start reviewing the attitude of doing right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. This podcast is sponsored by Fordata, a Canberra-based company that is committed to ensuring business owners have reliable and professional IT services. I'm a client of Fordata. I use their website hosting services, and I'm also reducing my email spam with their secure email hosting service. As a special offer to the Joyful Frugalista podcaster listeners, Fordata will provide, wherever you are, website hosting at $12 a month and up to two hours initial free migration service, valued at $300. Find them online at number 4data.com.au. 4data, they fix IT. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Today, I have a very special guest. Welcome, Karen. Thank you so much for having me, Serena. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Karen Holmes is a counsellor who specialises in helping people find their way through life's challenges. She specialises in grief counselling and mental health support, things that are very important during these crazy COVID and bushfire times. She is author of two books, Nurturing Kindness and How to Survive a Miscarriage. So let's start with kindness. Karen, what has happened to kindness this year? I would say a lot from the good, the bad and the ugly. We started off really strongly in the bushfires that people are really dishing it out big time and being so kind and so generous, really wanting to help others that were doing it tough. Mm. And as we all know, in March, COVID hit and then all of a sudden it was all about, I would say, yeah, me, me, I need to keep myself safe and I do this for me and me. So it really felt like it was disappearing again into the shadows of selfishness. I noticed that as well. It was it was a huge change. I don't think from my perspective it's been total selfishness. There's pockets of kindness that are still still existing. But it is hard to give during a crisis like that where by the nature of giving, sometimes that in itself could be dangerous. 100%. And uh, we also have to be aware And that is something that I remind myself of a lot as well, is this is a pandemic. This is unprecedented. None of us know how to handle this. We haven't been through it. None of us have been alive during the Spanish flu. So this is learning as we go. And I just feel while that is important to acknowledge, it's also a huge opportunity to practice kindness, to sort of just stop and say, wow, man, I am scared and I am worried and this is really crazy. At the same time, what can I still control and how can I control this and add kindness to it and then return in some degree in a very different way to the spirit of giving and looking after one another? Mm, Very well said. I like your comments about what you can control. I see it as a foodie with people getting really into baking, particularly sourdough baking, which has been fascinating to watch. Oh, gosh. I love cake, so I don't understand the sourdough craze. (laughs) But, I mean, it gave people something to do, and it's a new skill. And I'm sure it's very healthy. It is very healthy. I like my (laughs) sourdough. 
But the other thing that I was doing myself during COVID was jigsaw puzzles. In fact, it's something we are still doing. One of my challenges with my sharing economy and my quest this year to give over 1,000 items with intention was how to give during COVID, particularly where there might be a risk of infection when there were still cases Mm. in the community. However, I felt that I was still able to give jigsaw puzzles. So usually I would finish them, I'd leave them sit for at least 72 hours and then I'd pass it off in a contactless way. And I felt that way at least I was passing something forward and what was lovely was seeing the same jigsaw puzzle come up in the same group. Oh, that's brilliant. Mm. I mean, I'm excited about this for two reasons. Obviously, jigsaw puzzles are amazing, especially when we do them with our kids for the connection of the two brain halves. So me having a kit on the autism spectrum, puzzles are the go-to thing to help develop uh, further sort of brain connections. So, And even for neurotypical kids, it's an awesome thing to do, very calming, sort of almost like a meditating kind of activity. And I feel with you passing it on and others enjoying it, it's sort of a double whammy of kindness because you're helping others But you also allow yourself to, even though you're in a really tough situation like the rest of us, to still go, you know, I allow myself that kindness to keep giving. That cannot be underestimated how far-reaching that is, not only for yourself, but people in that group or the community as a whole. Mm, Well, thank you for that. (laughs) Appreciate appreciate the pat on the back from someone who who knows and works in in, in that, that space. So that's very valuable. Thank you. But obviously, a lot of people really are suffering at the Mm. moment. And how can we help people who are suffering? And are there enough support services for people? I would say there are not enough support services. The support that is sort of given from the government for mental health or the field of mental health is a bit haphazard, quickly sort of thrown together, not well thought through. Regardless of that, I think now is not the time to fight the system. We can do that in calmer times. So it comes back to what can we control? And there is still so much that we can do because even though COVID is here and it's really ravaging the world, we can still be kind to one another. We can still reach out to one another. We just need to think outside the box. So instead of sort of saying, I had a conversation with someone on Facebook, actually, instead of sort of saying, oh, the government's not doing this and the government wants to control me, like... Yeah, like waste five minutes on that. Or turn around and look around. Is there a neighbor like literally next door? Can you knock on the door and via social distancing, just have a brief chat, check in. Mm. Be the change you want to see in the world now more than ever and do it with small things. Even go for a walk and look out. Is someone having a hard time? What can you do to help without obviously putting yourself at risk? There's so much we can still not only control, but do. Yeah, well said. I started a Facebook group for my apartment. Now, I'd like to be able to say that that was a roaring success, but it wasn't. <sighs> Actually, most people don't really want to be connected that way. Mm. But that said, there's one neighbour in particular that I really gelled with, and I suspect she was having a bit of a hard time as well. And when mm. I went downstairs to do my Tai Chi, which I was doing a lot of during COVID, she often would be from the back fence Talking to me as I was doing that, she's given me several jigsaw puzzles, which I've Ooh, um, nice. then passed on. And 
Yeah, it's just been really nice to have those shared conversations when both of Mm. us were kind of struggling with the new reality and what that meant. And it also, again, is a brilliant example of still being actively out there trying to help because we still live in a society where everything is bigger, bigger, better, faster. So you'd sort of think have an apartment building of, let's say, 100 people and the expectation is so ingrained in us that we will need to reach all of them. We don't. Small is still a great start. You Mm. made one connection. That counts. That's important. It helped you. It helps her. That's a start. And we forget often to sort of really validate or value what we've done or maybe what others do because it's just not big enough. But one conversation, sometimes even one smile, can really make an impact. And that's what I really champion. Like start small. And you never know where it's going to go and how many people you will positively impact. I think that's really powerful. And we were speaking before. I hadn't realised I'd forgotten that we'd met before and you reminded me that we'd met (laughs) each other (laughs) in the emergency department at Canberra Hospital. And, of course, I had completely forgotten that encounter. But you had remembered. And Mm. that is powerful because we forget sometimes that every time we do something, every time we interact with other people, every time we send an email, there's someone on the other end and people remember. Mm. And that was really brought home to me oh, probably about four years ago where I met someone and he said, you mightn't remember me, but I remember you. And I went, yeah, I'm really sorry, but I really don't remember yeah. you. And it turned out that we had worked together back in 2001, I think. Mm. And he said that he was struggling with the toxic environment we were working in. And he decided that he would just sit at his desk and not talk to anyone all day because usually he was the one talking to other people. And he would wait and see who was the first person to speak to him. And I was actually the first person to speak to him that day. And I was like, really? Because we weren't actually working in the same work team. I was up on a a different floor. Mm. I was providing a different type of service. And I said, what happened? He said, oh, no, you just came down with some information that was really useful and you're just your normal cheerful self. But I honestly could not remember that at all because that's just what I normally did. But people do remember, don't they? They do. They do. And again, like that is all the brilliant examples you're giving today, Serena. And it's also where it's a small act of kindness, really, that you do every day just by being yourself. And we don't acknowledge that to ourselves, though. We can be so harsh and so it's like, I achieved nothing today and work was terrible and I'm <laughs> such a failure. But on that day, you helped someone get through their own day or just feel better. That is what we deserve to acknowledge to ourselves. I mean, it's not about getting a big head and sort of go, yeah, yeah, I'm so kind. It's not about that, but really just sort of going inwards and make the most of that power that we have to not only help ourselves, but others too. And it's always most powerful when we take care of ourselves first. Mm, Thank you for that. And I I should just add here that I'm not really kind and cheerful all the time. I do do have my my good days and I do have my bad days. But you did touch on something really important, which is self-love and self-nurturing. Yeah, big topic, especially for women. Because that is not something that we are ever taught, that we are ever set to make feel good about, because we are the ones that are always nurturing. We're the ones giving, giving, giving. So how dare we put ourselves first 
in a radical act of self-love, that is just really a concept that we still grapple with. But it is so important. I mean, we all know you can't pour from an empty cup kind of saying, and that is obviously true. But no one has ever taught us how to fill an empty cup. And that is the challenge. It's very deep and it is something that as a mother I struggle with, Mm. this need to put my kids first. And when I was going through really tough times, the thing that got me through was meditating every morning. Mm. Now, I didn't meditate for very long. Some days it might have only been five or ten minutes because that's all I had in my busy day. And I did feel a lot of guilt about that, about taking Mm. that time out. But I decided to flip it a bit and I figured that when I did that, I was a much better parent. I was much less likely to lose my temper because I don't know about you, but I'm a very imperfect mother and there's a lot of trigger points in my day with my children, especially when they were young. (laughs) Oh, dear me. Yes, I hear you. I'd like to think now we are all perfectly imperfect, Um, but that, that is hard, sort of hard earned because it comes down to you said guilt. Guilt goes with shame, you know, especially as girls or women as we grow up. We are ashamed into behaving a certain way. So that is how we learn to perceive ourselves. So of course, then, if I say to someone who's so deeply rooted in shame that, oh, you deserve to put yourself first and do it even kindly, they would just go, what is this crazy concept you are talking about? Because shame has taught that person that we are, by definition, not worthy of anything good, of anything nurturing, of anything that will just help us feel better. And that is where the crux of so many challenges lie. Like I see a lot of people that come to me and say, look, I really struggle with depression. I really struggle with anxiety. And that is a very serious struggle. Well, if we look at it and sort of peel the layers away, a lot of the time it comes down to, I'm not enough. I don't feel worthy or I don't belong, I don't know where to belong. And that triggers often the depression or the anxiety because I can never get anything done right. I'm such a failure and the panic starts. So it is often that I would say kindness is the medicine to many mental health challenges, not all of them. But if only we allowed ourselves to take the time and really let that sink in, I would, I believe a lot of change and positive change would be possible. Wow, that is so powerful. And there's a lot in there to unpack. Mm. But I guess I'd like to begin by saying that in most organizations and corporations, the focus is on outcomes, outcomes, results, success. It's not on kindness. No, it makes me giggle a little bit, I have to say, because I was actually once asked what the KPI of my work is. I just giggled and said, I don't know, I keep people alive. (laughs) I can't measure that. So my work is really like you can't measure that like in in maybe a traditional government service job. Yet that expectation is still out there that my work or anyone's work in the mental health field needs to be measured. So therefore it will be valid. And that is just a huge barrier for us as professionals and also those seeking help because then we already come, well, the expectation is that the KPI is I must feel better, such as being happy all the time. Mm. And that excludes then almost by default that we can work with kindness because kindness will tell us that this needs time, it needs repetition, 
it needs sometimes going around in circles. So we're moving further and further away from outcome, so to speak, in the traditional sense, and forget to look and actually acknowledge how much healing is happening when we really allow ourselves to open up to kindness and move away from that outcome or bigger, better, faster way of thinking. That is so powerful and so different to how many of us, I guess, Mm. are working Yes, or living. Yes, and if you're wondering, I struggle with that myself too. This is new to me as well. So if people sort of think like, I got it down pat, I, I do, but I don't. Because I've also been very sort of much raised in this productive environment, let's, shall we say. So this is hard for me too for some, on some days. I just push myself silly as well. So this mm. happens too. Productivity is a big one. You know, mm. what does productivity mean? What does an outcome mean? Sometimes it's very clear and sometimes it's less clear. Like an outcome at any cost, is mm. that really a good outcome? Exactly. And obviously I would have, I would argue no, but um, there's many opinions out there. But then again, it comes back to what can you control? And that is your thought process, your definition of your values. Do you want to go and try and please the big company or government department? Or do you want to scale it down, go inwards and define for yourself what it really means for you, what an outcome is, or how you want to apply kindness? Because that's where your power ultimately lies, within yourself and your mindset. Mm, Thank you for that. Now, going back to something you talked about earlier, and that was shame. You talk in your book about how shame is sneaky. In fact, you've got a particular term for it. Yes, I call it a sneaky bitch. (laughs) (laughs) So so why is shame a sneaky bitch? Because it creeps up on us, very simply put. The longer explanation would be that shame is obviously one of our primary emotions, like anger and fear. So that means we can't really get rid of it, which is fine. But because of how we've been raised and shame always sort of being under the carpet, we are not even able to actually identify it properly. So that makes it sneaky because we would sort of think, oh, I'm so embarrassed. And we are. But underneath that, the correct emotion to label would be shame, for example. So that is just really like a small thing where in everyday life we feel shame but because we've been taught not to ever acknowledge it because it's so, so bad, that we completely lost touch with it and therefore struggle to identify it, therefore don't understand necessarily why we feel so bad. And then the self-blaming starts and then we go down the rabbit hole. And that to me is quite a super sneaky attack on self-worth and self-love. Fascinating. And what are some of the things that people often feel shame about? For women, everything. Everything. It can really be, so we sort of say, I don't want to bore you or the listeners too much with sort of therapist talk, but there are people that are more sort of susceptible to shame than others, sort of shame prone. And that can really be the slightest triggers. Why did you cook pasta for dinner and not potatoes? That can really trigger them. It's like, oh my God, I am not good enough. I stuffed this up. I thought I said pasta, but why didn't I do potato? And then that can really trigger that sort of journey down the rabbit hole. Mm. So therefore, that's not a lot of us, but it can happen. And it's important to acknowledge that because every 
struggle with shame is valid. So it can be something as small as that, and then obviously you can go to sort of bigger things like I'm very too embarrassed myself at this important meeting, or I'm just very to even put myself out there because people won't like me. And the constant struggle of actually thinking I'm not good enough to even actually share an opinion or start my own business because I have something to share. So that is shame, just having a blast all over the place. Wow, that's quite deep. Mm. And I can see why it's sneaky and it's hard to identify. Yeah, it, it can be a bit daunting, let's be honest. But it's just a good thing, again, I, I sound like a broken record, control. What can you control? <laughs> How can you put shame back in its place? Because that's what it is. And Brene Brown says the antidote to shame is empathy. And obviously I would agree because she's amazing. And I would just add, and kindness. Because empathy and kindness are both rooted in love. Shame is not. Love is the force that can overcome it and put it back in its place. Like, look, you had your five minutes in the sun and now you're going to go on and still have a good day despite you showing up. Thank you very much. Talked also about belonging. Yes. In your book, you really had a really good example about young people who were struggling and it all boiled down to them feeling like they weren't belonging. I do feel very passionate about that. Um, Part of that is it's personal. I struggle to belong and I sometimes feel at the right age of 37, I just only just started to belong. And in a mental health setting, that's obviously can be very damaging, how lonely and how desperate, how isolating it can be when we just feel like we don't belong. And that can affect adults, it can affect teenagers, it can affect children. It's a big one. And I know growing up, particularly at primary school, I always felt that I didn't belong. I always was always the odd one in the library reading, <laughs> whereas everyone else you. <laughs> wanted to go to the surf beach and surf, and I just felt like I didn't belong. One of the things I really like, actually, about modern social media is that you can find your own tribe. Yes, and oh, so much power, you know, when you find your tribe, because it's, I mean, we used to sort of say, find, you know, the other weird people so you can be weird together. That's how, sort of how I try to justify my not belonging. Because for me, I was similar. I I loved reading too, so I'd be the same. But I always took it sort of towards something's wrong with me. Well, that is just not true. And that is where belonging really comes in, that you find a place where you know, this is my tribe or these are my people. And kindness, again, comes in there as well to say, actually say, no, I am worthy of finding my spot. I deserve to be the way I am and still belong somewhere, rather than sort of going, well, yep, something's definitely wrong with me. Everybody tells me so. That's then obviously where really kindness comes in and sort of says, no, I can lift you up if you let me. Wow. And how has COVID and all the events of 2020 affected people's sense of belonging? Because it's hard, particularly for young people, to socialise, at least in person. It's horrible, yeah, because, and that is part of really growing up as well, especially as teenagers, you know, we don't want to be home. (laughs) (laughs) Mum and dad aren't so cool. (laughs) Mum and dad suck (laughs) to some degree. So, yes, that is, again, the toll that it will take on mental health, suddenly being cooped up and not being in that space where I feel like I can develop my sense of identity and I can experiment a little bit obviously safely, and suddenly that's just been taken away. 
And we sort of feel, seem to say, well, deal with it. And to some degree, yes, we do have to deal with it, but we need to be aware that we are taking away, unfortunately, a huge part of their development into adulthood by simply not allowing them to socialise because it's not safe. It's sad, isn't it? Because oh, they're sort of at that, that stage where they're just getting used to that sense of freedom and independence yeah. and now it's like they're back on training wheels again. Exactly. And then parents often say, well, just focus on your schoolwork. Of course, that's important. But it's such an adult way of thinking, isn't it? That, well, now you have lots of time to read. I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, but do I want to? Not really. And um, Or also that even school in some degrees almost becoming very heavily restricted because we need to stick to all these obviously messages from the health department and all of that. So finding your way in good times as a teenager is hard enough. COVID just made it so much harder mm. for them. It's difficult, I'm sure. Yeah. You have separate chapters in your book about depression and anxiety. You don't label them together. Yes. I feel quite strongly about that for two reasons. It is not about to sort of say, oh, one's more important than the other. Not at all. They're just two separate mental health challenges. Yes, they are similar. Yes, they overlap. But I feel strongly we do people a disservice who are struggling with a mental health challenge to sort of say, oh, you probably have both. Or it's really better to have this one than that one. These labels or judgments just make it worse. So I really wanted to say to people that read the book that you either have both or or either or, whatever your situation, here is some practical tools and strategies for either of you to try. And I really wanted to come make that message clear that whatever it is you struggle with, you're still worthy, your struggle matters, and here are some tips, let's see how you go. Fantastic. And I know I personally have got a lot from the tips on the anxiety. That's chapter so in good. The book. So Great. <laughs> thank you very much for that. I won't give away that tip. People have to read the book. But I do want to ask you a tip about frugalista living. Yep. You have a very good frugalista tip to share. Yes, I love decluttering. <laughs> and I know a lot of frugalistas would probably agree with me. What they may not be aware of is that decluttering actually has a very strong impact on our mental health. So the less clutter we see, perceive, sense, maybe even smell or taste, the better it is for our mental health. So that's not to say that now you need to look around in your house and throw away absolutely everything until you have the couch and the table left. No. But know that even a small act of decluttering, like even as one box of organizing your children's toys, creates a sort of a serotonin release in your brain that just makes you feel better and it's also quite calming to do decluttering would be definitely my sort of frugalista kind of activity that i would recommend to anyone that doesn't have to be like i said in a big scale it can just sometimes be organized a spice rack small but mighty mm. we organized our spices a couple of weeks ago and i must say that that did feel good it's still on my list to do. <laughs> and I really, I really want to do it or just, yeah, all the toys. And it can also be in the big, for big items, of course. It's just um, when it's sort of done with purpose and intention, 
the decluttering just works on many levels is what I'm saying. So it's on mental health, but also creating space in with the old, out with the new, or not at all. It's just something that, it's a gift that keeps on giving on many levels. And that probably explains why so many people have been decluttering during COVID. Yes, 100%. And the whole point of of the frugal lifestyle, if I may say it is here, is just really such a huge opportunity to really nurture kindness. Because it's not about being stingy or being greedy or all these old, boring stereotypes. It's all about creating a life and a lifestyle that works for you. And kindness can help us there to sort of say, no, I deserve to sort of veer off the path of always having the newest, bestest things. And actually go, no, this aligns with my values. Kindness allows me to do that. And then you become, like you, Serena, joyfully frugal. Thank you so much for selling the virtues of frugality. (laughs) I love that. Thank you so much. Karen, where can people find you and how can people buy your book? So my book is available via my website. That's really the most straightforward, which is karinholmes.com. So that's Karen as in K-A-R-I-N, Holmes, H-O-L-M-E-S.com, feeling very grown up having .com. Yeah, you can get your copy there. You can find me on Facebook via my counselling website or page. That's what they say these days to kids, which is Karen H. Counselling. Lovely. Thank you so much. And to follow discussion on this podcast and other topics, please join the Joyful Frugalista Facebook group. And if you've liked this podcast, please rate it, follow it, like it, comment on it and tell your friends. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. you got an accentuate the positive feeling. Mine ain't the negative. Latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between.